So we're moving now out of three weeks where we've been reflecting on God. We're still going to talk about God. Be a little weird to move on from God as a theme, but we're going to shift from uh, our focus that we've had sort of on the Trinity, God, uh, God the Father or God the Source, God the Spirit, God the Son, Christ Jesus, God the Spirit, the living and active one, the sustainer and advocate. We're going to move from looking at those three as the persons or the way that God reveals God's self to us, and now into a question of how do we respond and how do we live as people who know this to be true? How do we live as people who are encountering and learning more and more about the God who comes to us in Jesus? And that can be a tricky thing in our modern cultural moment. Like, there are things, if I were to say to you, how do you be Christian? Like, how to be Christian? I were to say, what do Christians do and not do? There would probably be, like, a fair amount of overlap in a room like this. What are some things that Christians do? Just shout them out. We pray. Every Christian prays. If you don't pray, it's not very Christian. You so Christians pray. That makes sense. What else do we do? We, yeah, we seem to mostly go to church. I mean... <laughs> The lines have gotten fuzzier, and depends on how you define church. But look at you all showing up like good Christians ought. Uh, yeah, we worship. We gather to worship. We orient our life around the life of God, which exists and lives itself out in the life of the church in all its manifold expressions. But if I were to ask you what Christians don't do, and this is important because everything is, is, is dialectical. Everything exists between kind of on a spectrum between two points. Everything we do is something we don't do, and everything we don't do leads us to do something else. This is just how life works. So if I were to say, well, what don't Christians do? Would you have many answers? What don't Christians do? You know, 50 years ago, you'd have a big list, depending on where you were, because Christians don't drink, and Christians don't dance, and Christians don't play cards, and, you know, I like cards, and Sometimes I drink, I mean, not like in a bingy way, but you know, like, does that mean I'm not a Christian? Christians don't lie. There's something Christians don't do, unless we're filling out our taxes. And then the question is, what is a lie? <laughs> right? But you start seeing like, oh, that's, and, and Christians, we're not, we're not greedy, right? We don't, we, don't, we don't steal, but we might hoard a little bit into a little account that we, I don't know, save in and pile up. Money, it's not real money, it's just numbers now, so maybe that's, you know, you understand, like, it, it is a little tricky to say, well, okay, we can name some of what Christians do, but what we don't do has become harder and harder. And the questions have become more and more complex. Because there was a time where you and your little silo, your denomination, would just give you all the answers. Here's what Christians do and don't do. And I want to also say that in some parts of the church, that's still the case. The Catholics, they're not, you know, giving you a bunch of nuance. They're saying, like, do this, don't do this, but if you don't follow the rules, we don't really care. That's the Catholic way. Very clear on yes and no's, a lot of space around the edge. The Orthodox say, this is just what we believe and it's what we do. It's always what we've done. Shut up and seek God. And that seems like a perfectly valid answer to me as well. But we're not part of the Catholic tradition. We're not part of the Orthodox tradition. Which puts us in the third arm of the church, the Protestant church. And for us in this kind of culture, we want to be in the world, not of it, but in it. We want to know people. We want to be open. We want to be nuanced. We want to discern. And this is what Protestants have always done well. 
But the problem is today there's just too many words, too many ideas, too many perspectives, and too many arguments. And so is there any way for a group of Christians to be Christian together, to cohere in a way that people in our neighborhoods could point to us and say, oh, they're Christian. They do these things. They don't do these things. Those are signs to me they're Christian. What would it look like for us today to be Christian without necessarily having a list of 32 things that you are and are not allowed to do? Because that's just not the way that we operate. So this is going to be what we focus on for the next number of weeks. We're going to be reflecting on what Christians have called the vices and the virtues. Uh, you might have heard them, the seven deadly sins. It sounds really intense that way. Uh, and the seven cardinal virtues. And I'll get into a little bit about where vice and virtue as, as language comes from and where it fits in church tradition. But I suspect, and Nina and I have spent a fair amount of time talking and discerning through these themes, uh, we suspect this might be a good way forward for churches, congregations like ours, who are seeking to follow Christ in very genuine ways, but also seeking to be spaces where differences come together and people are uh, given the tools to discern what Jesus is inviting them into. Does that make sense as a primer? Okay. Well, let's go then to our scripture verse. We are going to be in the letter to the church in Colossae, the letter to the Colossians, chapter 3. There are pew Bibles. You don't need to pull out a Bible. You can just close your eyes and let the words wash over you. I'll read nice and slow. But if you would like to follow along, there should be some pew Bibles around, and you can open one of those up to the letter to the Colossians, chapter 3. The Apostle Paul writing to the church in Colossae, the letter to the Colossians, chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. If, therefore, you were raised together with the anointed, seek the things above, where the anointed is sitting at God's right hand. Set your mind on the things above, not the things on earth. For you have died, and your life has been hidden with the anointed in God. Quick pause. Translation I'm reading here is using the word anointed instead of the word Christ, because Christ means anointed one. And so this is speaking and referencing to Jesus, the Christ, using the language of anointed. Back to the text. When the anointed, our life, is made manifest, then you too will be made manifest along with him in glory. So mortify, uh, side note, mortify, mortality, life, put to death is what it's saying. Put to death, mortify, mortality. So mortify those bodily members that are on earth. Whoring, impurity, passion, malign desire, and acquisitiveness, which is idolatry. On account of which things God's indignation is coming, and in which things you used to walk, back then when you lived by them. But now you must put it all away, indignation, animosity, malice, 
blasphemy, blasphemy, obscene speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, having shed the old man along with all his practices and having donned the new man who is renewed in full knowledge according to the image of the one creating him. Where there is no Greek and Judean, circumcision and foreskin, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free man, rather, the anointed is in all things and is all things. Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, put on inward compassion, honesty, humility, gentleness, magnanimity, upholding one another and forgiving one another if anyone should have a complaint against anyone. Just as the Lord forgave you, so you also. And above all these, love, which is the bond of perfection. And let the anointed's peace rule in your hearts, to which you were indeed called in one body, and become thankful. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What a nice Thanksgiving text, eh? Right at the end there. Shed off all this, shed off all this, shed off the old man. And by man there, you know, in the anthropological sense, man there referring to humans, all humans, men and women, to all people on the spectrum of humanity, shed off the old pattern, the old way of living, and put on the new pattern, who is Jesus, the true vision of what a human being is. And then we get this list of all the old things that need to be shed off, and all the new things which can be brought on. But it's interesting because Paul was a pastor, which means he wasn't writing these ideas in abstract. He's writing to a literal community, not all that different from ours. And he knew in that community what was coming up. What are the ways that that old way of thinking, that old pattern, are interrupting? Where is their malice? Where is their bitterness? Where is their envy? Where is their strife? Where is their acquisitiveness? Trying to take more than we need, which is idolatry. And he knows then what to put on. And there's a gift then, in our time and place, to having a text like this. But the challenge is that our context is so different. In our context, we've got people from all sorts of different cultures, with all sorts of different mental wirings. And what to one of us might look like greed, to another one might look like receiving what is properly theirs. For some of us, what, what might look like uh, anger is actually a proper expression of their emotions. And so it becomes difficult to know when are we joking around and when is this obscene speech? So you caught that one in there, right? Like at what line am I joking and at what line am I speaking obscenely? And I'll speak personally, I don't always know the line. 
until I see my wife's face, and then I instantly know the line, right? Sorry, Meg. <laughs> but here's an interesting reality. We actually can read the internal line of what is obscene and what is appropriate. But it's not as clean as a list of what we should and should not say. The gift of our time is that we can discern the spirit in many different expressions. It might manifest or be spoken of or acted out in many different ways, but we can tell if this is a spirit of light or a spirit of darkness. But it's difficult to tell. And in a Protestant church like ours, it can be challenging to know where, where we are discerning and when we are just making excuses. This is the real danger of freedom in Christ. If you want real freedom in Christ, it's yours. It is given to you. You are loved, forgiven, received as you are. All things are yours. Everything is available to you. But if we want to discern and grow into health, grow into the fullness of Jesus, then we must discern what is beneficial or not beneficial for us, what is of the old life and old pattern, and what is of the new life and the new pattern. And this is where the language of virtue and vice can be very helpful. When the desert monastics fled from Rome and from the cities that were Roman, this was like mid-200s to mid-300s. At first, one guy left. His name was Paul, very ordinary guy. He went, he lived in the wilderness. Apparently, he lived there for about 100 years and had, like, one great conversation, and then he died. But, like, his life apparently was just, like, bliss with God out in the wilderness with nothing. And the people living in the cities were beginning to realize that the cities were crazy places where people were acting in strange ways. It was harder to discern where God was at work and where was worldly power at work. And Christianity was either being persecuted on the one hand or accepted as a state religion on the other hand, and both persecution and acceptance makes it difficult to be Christian. And so what started with one guy, Paul, in the wilderness around 250 became community of thousands of people by the mid-300s, 100 years later to the point where they said they had built a city in the wilderness because so many people recognized that this world has nothing for us. It has nothing for you. At best, you'll be able to squeak out a little existence on the corner of Babylon and have a little bit of retirement before you die. That is the best case scenario. For most of us, this world and its patterns has nothing. It's all a game to steal our money, to steal our attention. The way of Christ is here to set us free. You don't have to go live in the wilderness, but if you did, you'd actually probably be happier, less depressed, less anxious, because there's a freedom that comes with stripping away all that the world puts on us to find our life hidden in Christ. And there in the wilderness, removed from the whole context of the city, the monks were shocked to discover, the monks and nuns, men and women, were shocked to discover that they still faced temptation. And that is interesting. It makes a fair amount of sense. You might think if you move to the wilderness, there'd be nothing to tempt you there because there's nothing going on. There's no TV in the wilderness. There's no barbecue in the wilderness. 
There's no social groups to work your way up the social ladder of. There's no retirement. You know, you just live every day until you die. Very simple life. And yet they still found themselves tempted to sleep away the days. And they found themselves tempted when food did come to them to hoard it or to binge it. They still found themselves beset by even sexual thoughts and lusts even away from everything that would prompt them in the physical world, they still found these ideas or these spirits would come to them in temptation. So they called these spirits vices. Vice comes from the Hebrew word, uh, sorry, not the Hebrew word, the Latin word vitium, which means like a blemish or a deficit um, in the sense that, you know, a thing is complete, a work of art is complete, and then, like, boom, you know, a, a blemish gets on it, or something's functioning, you know, the machine's working properly, and then one part breaks, and boom, the whole thing breaks. Or, or maybe even like something living, like a, a, a plant or a tree that might get blight on it, that begins to spread and corrupt and rot the whole. These vices were little spots, little blemishes that began to corrupt their whole life. Unless they could properly name the vice and notice it, and turn from the vice back towards Christ. Is this making sense so far? Kind of in a theoretical sense? So for them in the wilderness, the life of the Christian, how to be Christian, became a question not of where they were, but of which way they were oriented. Were they oriented towards vice, which leads to death, or towards virtue, which leads to to life. Virtue, ver, means man. Again, kind of human in the human sense. It's the things that make us truly human. That's the virtues. Generosity and compassion. This is what makes the human being the human being. Virtue, ver, is Latin for human, man, person. A couple months ago, uh, actually it was a couple years ago, thank God for that, because it's a story where I made a mistake. Uh, my family, we were up north camping, and I find once you get past Canada's Wonderland on the 400, you just don't know where you are. I don't know about you. Some of you might be from up north, so you've got a sense. But if you're from, like, the GTA and you drive north on the 400, once you pass Wonderland, it's all just wilderness. You have no idea where you are, where you're going. You're just driving next to rocks that they carved out to give you this highway. Thank you for that. And Meg and I were camping, and we got on the highway, and I turned towards Toronto, or so I thought. And I was just driving in the right-hand lane, like I should, all the way to Toronto before I started realizing that none of these signs said Toronto at all, and I had spent the last 45 minutes driving in the wrong direction, driving north, not south towards Toronto. This is like virtue and vice. It really doesn't matter which way you're going. Sorry, it really doesn't matter how far you are from your destination. That's what I meant to say. It matters a lot which way you're going. It's actually like what I'm trying to say is the only thing that matters, but thank you for being so gracious. It doesn't matter how far you are from the destination. It only matters which way you're oriented. Now, if we can just quickly go back to the, the language we've used the last three weeks, the idea of, of seeking God being like climbing a mountain. You could also say it's like coming around the table of Christ. This week we actually threw the, the candle in to kind of give us a pure mountain imagery. Picture this table like Christ calling you home. There is a center to the cosmos. There is a way that brings you inward, where you collide with others on the journey. Not only does it bring you to the foot of this table, 
which is then the foot of the mountain, it brings you up. You begin to ascend up towards Christ, who is the light on the hill, the one who, when he is lifted up, will call all people to himself. The way towards Christ requires a turning from the infinite options that the world offers us. If you wanted to play out this pattern in this room, there is only one place in this room where natural light is burning. And you'll note that it reaches each one of you where you are. All of us can look at this light and have the light reach us. If you turn from the light, you have infinite options of where you could go. You could do anything, become anyone, pursue any desire. But it will take you further from the light. And the further you wander away, the less likely you are to ever collide with anyone else pursuing the same thing as you because you have entered the infinite void. That's vice. Gluttony is one of the vices. You will never find enough to eat to be satisfied. Greed is one of the vices. You will never have enough money to be satisfied. And you can see this with all of these vices. They lead us into infinite options, but they actually give us nothing. They lead us into the wilderness, not to seek God, but to die. When we turn towards the virtues, we see what a human being is. And as followers of Jesus, we know that a true human being looks exactly like Jesus. When we turn to the light of Jesus, we are drawn towards the light. We are drawn into relationships side by side with one another. We're even drawn into relationship with those who are on the other side of the mountain or the other side of the table. People we'd never choose to spend time with and we may not even encounter until we get close enough to see all who God is drawing in. But as we walk step by step towards those virtues, we get caught up in the life of Jesus. The life of Jesus was always coming to us. This is the really good news. You don't have to get close to the light for the light to reach you. You don't have to even be pursuing the light for the light to be pursuing you. But you do need to turn from the infinite nothing to see the light of Christ that has already come to you and calls you forward, not so that you can earn your salvation, not so that you can become someone worthy of love. You are already loved. You are already received. All is grace. But the same grace that saves us, transforms us, makes us more alive, lifts our heads, and like Jesus, turns us into a true human being with life to the full. Amen.